In this lecture, we'll conclude the discussion of Chapter 7 on schools. When class was finishing, we were discussing the role of transitions and the difficulty of transitions from elementary school to middle school or junior high and from middle school or junior high to high school. And the fact that in negative terms, these transitions are linked to lower grades for the average student, higher anxiety. And it's important to point out that for some students, the transition to high school, whether it's from junior high or middle school, can actually be very positive, particularly where the children are growing from a situation in which they've had a cohort of peers that they've known since early in life and they have developed a social status that is a negative rejected because of withdrawn behavior rather than a rejected social status that's negative because they're aggressive um, or that is an either neglected social status or rejected because the children are idiosyncratic in their interests. We are children who are different in their pattern of interests from the typical other child in their cohort move to a larger school and in fact find a group of peers with whom they can constructively pursue their interests. One of the things that can happen is social status can change fairly dramatically. As we mentioned in the discussion of peer relationships, having reciprocated friendships is a boost to mental health, a boost to social status. And for some children who were relatively isolated as pre-adolescence, as very early adolescence, moving to high school allows them to find a reference group to join. And so a child who has been a loner, not because of negative behavior, but because there was not a group that shared their interests. And identity can be shaped personally um, in a more positive direction, and social status moves in a more positive direction. So while on average school transitions are difficult for most students and the more transitions the greater the difficulty, um, for some students school transitions can actually be positive. Uh, you also see this kind of change quite frequently when students move from high school to college. So the individual who has years of association with a consistent group 
of students upon going to college is able to affiliate with students who have talents and interests that are shared and our sense of ourselves and other people's sense of a person change when they become part of a group. We've discussed the difference between educational philosophies that may characterize schools, the comprehensive approach that emphasizes tracking, the progressive approach that emphasizes well-rounded development, and the standards approach. Most high schools, most middle schools, are a blend of the standards-oriented approach and the comprehensive approach. Uh, some private schools are uh, still largely governed by a progressive philosophy, but that is facilitated by the private school's ability to be very selective in terms of who they admit by the self-selection factors of who is attracted to private schools and by the private school's greater ability to dismiss, expel, exclude students who don't fit within the environment that they're striving to create. A, a related dimension on which schools may vary is the goal orientation of the school. Um, schools with a performance orientation may place a great deal of attention in singling out high achievers. They post who makes the honor roll. I've heard of schools that post not the names but the SAT scores that students get. Uh, again, confidentiality isn't violated because scores aren't associated with names, but if you see that in your class of 200, four students got perfect math scores, uh, three students got perfect verbal scores, two students got perfect writing scores, and your scores are in the middle of the pack. You don't necessarily feel very good about that. You certainly feel much worse if your scores are below the average. In schools that focus on highlighting high performance, school students focus on competition for grades and tend to be much less motivated to learn for the sake of learning. In the outcomes in terms of GPAs that students achieve are seen as signs of innate ability rather than effort rather than the preparation that students may have brought to the high school experience. In schools that have a philosophy that emphasizes mastery. Students are recognized for their effort, they're recognized for their improvement. The result is that student interest in learning tends to be greater and students tend to, on average, have higher senses of personal efficacy. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that grades aren't awarded competitively, at least in some classes, uh, but that grades are not highlighted, grades are not seen as the measure of a student's worth. Other aspects of schools that contribute to the experience of being a student at a particular school at a particular time um, include the climate of safety and fairness. How do school officials exert their authority? Do students have to pass through metal detectors? Are security officers present in the hallways of a school? Does the school enforce uh, zero tolerance policies? Certainly, there are schools that have metal detectors, there are schools that have security guards in the halls because this reflects the reality of the neighborhoods in which the school is located, um, in which the students who attend the school um, live. Um, but even outside of some danger zones. Schools differ a great deal in the sense that students have of being physically safe, of there being fair, equitable procedures that will be um, equitably applied. So if, for example, um, it should happen that if you are an African-American student and you behave aggressively, you will be punished severely, you will be uh, sent to detention, um, you may be suspended from school, but if you are Dominican or if you are Mexican or if you are something else, um, you'll be scolded but not suspended. Um, then that corrodes the student's sense of fairness. Um, schools have personalities under particular administrators and particular groups of teachers, and a, a skilled principal who has the, the luxury of being able to really develop the teaching administrative staff uh, can be like an authoritative parent, can make concern for the students very, very clear while expecting good behavior, uh, honest effort, and performance that is high relative to students' ability. Um, where there is authoritative leadership in schools, many more students have a sense that they are part of a community, that teachers and administrators care about what happens to them as individuals, see them as individuals rather than a stereotype set of expectations based on their race, based on their ethnicity, based on their family's financial situation. 
and students tend to be more involved in school activities, more involved in their schoolwork uh, across a number of dimensions where there is a positive, authoritative approach to school leadership. Student learning outcomes, student social outcomes uh, tend to be much more positive. So principals can do a great deal to set the tone for a school, but the tone for a classroom depends in large part on the teacher who is leading a classroom. How much does the teacher know about his or her subject matter? How much does the teacher know about effective teaching for the types of students in his or her classrooms? Uh, how skilled, how sensitive is the teacher in responding to the, the dynamic changes within a classroom. Teachers with more experience, uh, on average, tend to have a higher sense of self-efficacy, tend to have deeper, broader subject knowledge and an understanding of what their students will frequently have difficulty comprehending and have developed with experience ways of communicating difficult concepts that are accessible and usable by their students. It's often the case that teachers in middle school and junior high um, have less confidence in their abilities as teachers. Secondary school teachers may have much more confidence in their subject knowledge, but because they spend less time with their students than do elementary school teachers and frequently junior and middle high school students, um, they have, in many cases, less personal involvement. Um, but personal involvement from teachers in particular disciplines is frequently a really invaluable influence where students have talent in a particular domain or particular discipline. Uh, this has been extensively studied um, in the case of math and science. Having effective teachers isn't enough to encourage students who have talent for math or science, who have interest in math or science. It's important the teachers not only be effective, but that they be concerned about their talented students and that they be encouraging and involved um, in promoting students, not just their interests, but their ongoing engagement with the activities of mathematics, higher mathematics, with the activities of science. Um, the same is true in the arts. The same is true in literature, social studies, history, where a teacher recognizes that a child, that an adolescent, has interest and talent in a discipline. It's not enough to teach well. It's not enough to give the student the grades that they earn. For students 
to develop intellectually, to find their passion. They have to have teachers who are passionate about their disciplines, recognize a kindred soul, and do something to kindle those sparks of interest and talent. Do things to get those students more engaged in the discipline than simply taking the typical high school course. Teachers' expectations for individual students matter enormously. If a teacher expects a particular student to do poorly, they're unlikely to respond in ways that encourage that student to student questions, to student comments, uh, to students inadequate or mediocre performance. I didn't expect any better than that from so-and-so. Uh, but where teachers have high expectations for students, uh, they ask elaborative questions, they encourage, they prompt when a student gives an incorrect response. Um, they behave very, very differently based on their expectations. Um, ideally, um, expectations would always be based on the evidence we see. Um, would, uh, expectations would always be individuated to particular students. Uh, but all too often, expectations are based on stereotypic depictions um, based on race, based on class, based on family situation. So students to develop, students to thrive, students to remain engaged academically need to have teachers who care about them as individuals, who expect them as individuals to be able to learn, to be able to remain engaged with a particular topic. Students are exquisitely sensitive to low expectations and to high expectations. But a student who has frequently encountered teachers who covertly or overtly communicate low expectations may be slow to recognize higher expectations from a new teacher. The things that we want in relationships with peers, trust, concern, respect, are things that students also need from their teachers. So where students see themselves as being talked down to, being treated in an unfair, disrespectful fashion, uh, the most likely response is withdrawal of emotional and intellectual investment. Um, a more serious response is dropping out of school. Uh, yet more serious responses can include uh, physical assaults on teachers. Now I don't want to say if a teacher is assaulted, it is always the teacher's fault, that the teacher treated the student with disrespect. Um, because adolescents are responsible for their own behavior. But we're
students attack teachers. Uh, there are pervasive problems, not typically just in a classroom, uh, but in a school. Violence against teachers doesn't develop context-free. Um, a number of issues that have been historical issues in American schools over the last 60-70 years uh, remain issues. In the late 19th century, Jim Crow laws in the South kept the descendants of slaves from voting, restricted the places they could live, and restricted educational opportunities quite seriously. Um, the Atlanta Compromise was an agreement reached between the founder of Tuskegee Institute uh, and Southern legislators that basically said uh, he and some other leaders of the um, African American community would keep Southern blacks from agitating for the vote um, and from agitating for higher education. In return, free public schooling would be provided that would be separate, uh, that would prepare African American children for jobs, but menial jobs. Um, and African Americans wouldn't agitate to go to college. The historically black colleges were founded at that time as agricultural and mechanical schools. So they were founded to prepare black citizens for the kinds of careers that it was okay with the white leadership of the South for them to have. Um, that situation that blacks, schools for black children would be separate and would not be uh, equal in terms of the curricula they offered, the quality of the teachers uh, that taught in them, etc., etc., uh, continued relatively unchallenged until 1954 with the Supreme Court decision Brown versus Board of Education, which declared that separate schools were inherently unequal. So the theory was separate schools um, of equal value given the nature of the various populations that would be served. And in, in, in Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court said separate schools are inherently unequal. Um, and de jure segregation or segregation by law um, was outlawed. Um, 
the South and parts of the Northeast erupted in widespread protest by whites who did not want their children going to school with black children. Uh, during the 60s, a number of efforts were made to desegregate schools. Uh, court challenges have by and large not upheld busing as an appropriate um, remedy for schools that were segregated de facto or by fact. Most schools are, attendance at most schools is based on where people live and many of our communities remain heavily racially segregated. Where communities are racially segregated, neighborhood schools are going to be um, heavily segregated. Um, so many schools today, 68 years after Brown versus Board of Education, um, have 100% minority enrollment. Racial segregation remains um, a fact in public elementary and high schools. Um, many schools are multiracial with three or more racial groups. Um, schools that have 50% uh, or higher um, minority enrollment are uh, much more likely to have high dropout rates. Overall, only about 10% of high school students fail to graduate eventually. Uh, but in schools with very high minority enrollment, the dropout rates can be 50% or even higher. Um, students who, whose first language is not English are at much greater risk for dropping out of high school than are students whose first language is in English. Um, if we look multiculturally, um, in addition to the high school dropout problem that um, plagues some urban, um, heavily segregated schools in this country, um, uh, other kinds of dropout or school refusal problems occur in other cultures. Japan is an incredibly homogenous culture, uh, but uh, a disorder known as hikikomori has been written about for over 20 years in Japan. Um, the typical individual exhibiting this syndrome of behaviors is male rather than female. Uh, and at some point, typically in high school, uh, but sometimes it doesn't occur until college, uh, refuses to go to school anymore. This may or may not be accompanied by refusal to do a number of, of other um, age-appropriate things like uh, bathe and change clothes, uh, but for many people it's simply a refusal to leave home. Um, and this 
school refusal, sociability refusal may extend for four or five years. Uh, some people are ultimately diagnosed with psychiatric disorders that are recognized worldwide, but um, many ultimately decide to end their seclusion. Uh, it, in recent years, has been associated with what in this country we might call internet addiction, but spending abnormally large numbers of hours online or playing computer games. But it's a, a pathological withdrawal from the world of face-to-face -face contact that appears to be culturally specific to Japan. In this country, the phenomenon of school refusal is known but not well studied. Uh, and it, again, is more typical among males than females and may occur among children of any socioeconomic status. So it's, it's, this isn't the case of the high school student who is academically failing, who finds that street life is more attractive than school life. It's the case of the student who becomes not just withdrawn at school, but such a recluse that they won't go to school. They may not leave their parents' home. Um, again, it frequently resolves over time, but seldom very, very quickly. Another current issue um, in public schools is the extent to which parents should have the choice of which school their children attend. And, and these are very divisive issues, and they're made more divisive by politicians, in my humble opinion. Um, charter schools are schools that are developed by committee of concerned parents or educators that receive money from the public school district that in certainly one view siphon money away from the public school district without accountability, but one can argue that public schools don't have a great deal of accountability. Um, another debate, let me make my point of view clear here. Um, I think charter schools are, are not good for the country. I think that charter schools are not good for communities. I think that parents, whether their children are in public school or not, have an obligation to see that public schools are as well run as possible and delivering the best possible education for the children of a community. And I think charter schools make that more difficult. Another debate is um, whether parents who choose to send their children to private schools uh, could have some of the cost of that underwritten 
uh, by vouchers. Uh, the argument is uh, I as JQ taxpayer pay property taxes and state taxes, uh, some of which, a large measure of which, in the case of property taxes, go to support the public schools. But if I choose to send my child to a private school, I'm deriving no direct benefit from my tax dollars. Um, so the argument is uh, that I should get a voucher for some um, portion of the average amount spent educating a public school child that I can then um, use to offset the cost of private school tuition. Uh, it's a highly contentious issue. It's made complicated by the fact that the majority of private schools and the vast majority of children enrolled in private schools are in religious schools. And the majority of religious schools are Catholic schools. Um, so the question then becomes to what extent should public taxpayer dollars be used to support religious education, whether it's in a Catholic school, a yeshiva, or a madrasa. Um, so people tend to have very strong opinions about vouchers. I started all of my children in private religious schools, decided that two of them would receive better educations for their individual needs in the public schools. Um, and I believe in public schools. I just think public schooling should be as good as it possibly can be. And if I choose to send my children to another school, whether it's a private prep school that's secular in its orientation or a religious school, that's my business. That's my choice. And I don't think that other taxpayers should have to support my personal choice. Um, but again, that's my opinion. Um, homeschooling is an option that an increasing number of parents have pursued and sometimes with very positive results, uh, but sometimes with very negative results. Again, anecdotes are not data, uh, but just to compare, one of my neighbors um, chose to homeschool their two children. Um, child number one had some behavioral issues, was continually being excluded from classrooms because of behavior and being sent home, uh, had social problems with children in the neighborhood, and parents decided that homeschooling made sense and finding a community of other children who shared some of his issues made sense. He got an excellent education, uh, will graduate from college soon. The other child um, who was developing typically, um, in contrast, uh, didn't get a basic background in literacy or numeracy skills, um, has not been able to successfully complete college level work, and I think was done a grave disservice by the parents' decision 
uh, for homeschooling. Another issue um, concerns what to do with gifted students. Uh, the typical criterion for giftedness, or for all giftedness, is an IQ score of 130 or above, a total IQ or, or full-scale IQ score of 130 or above. Um, the argument is that the intellectually uh, precocious child will more fully develop their talents in a classroom with children of similar ability, uh, that teachers can teach to the ability and the interests of um, the gifted child, the gifted adolescent, um, more uh, accurately, more effectively in a homogenous classroom. Um, it, it is pretty clear in the case of mathematics that segregating students who have an unusual level of aptitude for mathematics enables them to um, work at their own pace and achieve at their level of ability and effort. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of reason in holding students back so that um, others can catch up. Um, but in terms of, of many disciplinary areas, uh, the justification for separate classes for the gifted uh, has less research support. Uh, parents often have very, very strong opinions about this. Of course, we all, parents, all parents want to believe that their children are very, very special. Um, and definitionally, most of our children are average. <laughs> We're gifted programs exist, it can happen that they um, appear to be exclusionary, that you may, um, in a multiracial school, have a gifted and talented program that consists of most of the Asians in the school and mostly Asians with a slight smattering of other students. Um, that will tend to distress some parents. Um, so the, the issues surrounded, surrounding um, what to do with gifted students are, are complicated. Um, with the wider availability of advanced placement and international baccalaureate courses, uh, some of the issue uh, is diffused. But these courses are subject to cutbacks when schools face uh, funding difficulties, as many, many uh, school districts have in the last four years. Uh, but most schools offer at least some advanced placement courses. But for the truly gifted student, um, AP courses may not go far enough.
another issue is uh, education of students with disabilities. Uh, there are very different issues associated with the education of students with physical disabilities, those with learning or cognitive disabilities, and those with behavioral disabilities. Um, the emphasis in recent years has been um, on limiting the use of specialized or self-contained classrooms and encouraging mainstreaming of students to the extent that facilities uh, make that possible. There's much wider use uh, of shadows even in middle school, though it's um, atypical in high school. Um, a shadow would help a student with disabilities stay focused, stay in control. Um, the evidence for the effectiveness in terms of educational outcomes um, for mainstreaming is mixed. Um, it doesn't seem to have any negative effects on typically developing students, uh, but to the extent to which it is helpful for the disabled student depends very heavily on the, the competence, the attitude, the consistency of um, individual teachers and the administration in terms of how sensitively they respond to the needs of individual students. And most schools continue to offer some variety of extracurricular opportunities to students. Um, these may be activities that occur within the school they may have an academic focus, uh, like intellectual competitions, sort of like college bowl or science um, Olympiad, uh, math Olympiads. Uh, they may be sports-based. They may be uh, interest-based. Um, and the majority of high school students participate in at least some extracurricular activities. In smaller high schools, a higher participation of students, a higher participation rate is found. Um, with higher grades, participation tends to drop. Uh, if you are on track to become editor of the yearbook or editor of the student newspaper, you're likely to stay involved junior and senior year. But if you're still doing um, fairly low-level work, you may be less likely to stay involved. Um, students who are engaged in extracurricular activities earn better grades than students who are not engaged, tend to feel more a part of the school community, are less likely to drop out of school, much less likely to engage in delinquent behaviors, uh, disruptive behaviors in school, much less likely to be involved in substance abuse. Um, extracurricular activities give students an opportunity to explore possible identities. 
uh, someone who's interested in a career in journalism um, may find their interest really sparked and encouraged by their experience writing for a yearbook, writing for a student newspaper. Someone who has an interest in the arts uh, may, again, find their interest promoted um, by organizing an exhibition or participating in the performing arts. So extracurricular activities aren't just non-problematic ways to spend time. They're an opportunity for adolescents to find what they enjoy doing, to find what they're good at, to find what fascinates them. Today, a, a large majority of high school students assume that they will go on to college, and many do. Um, more girls go on to college, um, more females actually graduate from college than males. And we're now at the point um, past parity in most graduate programs. There are more female medical students than male, more female law students than male, more psychology graduate students who are female than male. Engineering, mathematics, statistics, computer science um, remain male dominated, but female enrollment in these disciplines has increased too. So who goes to college? Students whose families can't afford to send them are extremely likely to go to college. Um, white and Asian students are more likely to go to college than African American and um, Hispanic students. The children of parents who have stressed the importance of education, who have stressed that education is either a, a basic assumption we make about what you're going to do as a young adult or who have said um, education is the key for you to have a better life than we've been able to provide for you. So parents who keep college in mind and communicate clear expectations that their students will perform well enough in high school that they can be admitted to college are much more likely to go to college than students whose parents um, don't encourage ambitions for higher education. Um, but many, many students having graduated from high school are ill-prepared for college. 50% of students enrolling in college have to take some remedial courses, either in math, uh, in English, or in writing. Um, that's pretty shocking. Now, if we um, separate students who are entering two-year community schools from those who are entering four-year colleges or research universities, um, we, we see that the remedial figure is much, much higher for the two-year community colleges than it is for the four-year schools. Uh, but even in four-year schools and universities, a shocking percentage of students have to take remedial courses. 
uh, which suggests that um, high schools are, are not doing a very good job of enforcing meaningful standards of achievement, not doing a very good job of encouraging uh, meaningful mastery of basic skills of literacy, numeracy, analytic thinking. And earlier in the course, uh, we discussed that two important developmental goals are for individuals to develop behavioral autonomy and emotional autonomy. That is, to be able to make decisions about their activity on their own, to choose goals, to organize their activity toward achievement of their goals. Um, in terms of emotional autonomy, that people should be able to evaluate themselves, evaluate their activity, and realistically respond to it emotionally without being um, heavily dependent on the approval of other people or crushed by the disapproval of other people. Um, the behavior of parents is very, very important throughout the developmental course in achieving or not achieving behavioral autonomy and emotional autonomy. But other adults, non-familial adults, also play important roles in helping individuals develop emotional and behavioral autonomy. And where an adult takes a particular personal interest in an individual, um, whether it's an adolescent, a child, or a coworker in a more junior role, um, we sometimes speak of mentor and protege roles. So um, a mentor is, in the context of this course, an adult who isn't a family relation who has a personal connection and personal interest in promoting the development of an adolescent. Um, a mentor provides positive examples, may teach skill by example or by instruction, um, promoting the development of competence and confidence, promoting self-efficacy. And this encouragement, this respect, this emotional bond um, helps adolescents develop both behavioral autonomy and emotional autonomy. Um, we can speak of the relationships that an individual has as an asset that they have. And the term social capital is used to refer to the assets that we have because of our relationships with other people. Um, the relationships we have with other people may provide us referrals to job opportunities, referrals to internship opportunities, to training opportunities that we wouldn't have without those relationships. Social capital is often more readily available uh, to middle-class teens 
uh, and upper class teens. Adolescents may share the social capital that their parents have accumulated. A parent may have a business or professional associate uh, who will consider the child of an associate for an internship when they would be much less likely to consider the child of a stranger. Um, in part to compensate for this lower access to mentors that uh, minority teenagers, that teenagers from poorer families have, a number of organizations have set up volunteer mentor programs. And these can have very positive effects. Um, they can also have negative impacts. Where a teen has learned to expect disapproval from adults, to expect that adults will have uh, low expectations of them, a mentor who is ill-matched to them, um, who can't treat them with respect, who can't be open and accepting to the team where they are um, and find a way to be a positive model without being a critical model or condescending model. Those mentoring relationships have negative effects. It's one more negative relationship for the adult to experience, for the adolescent to experience with the adult world. Um, most teens do some work to earn some money. Uh, this may be yard work, delivering newspapers, babysitting. For older teens, it's typically working at McDonald's, working at, well, in the old days, um, something like Video Shack, <laughs> um, or working at a front desk in um, an office doing receptionist work. Um, it's not harmful for adolescents, whether high school students or college students, to do some work and earn some money. Uh, but 15 hours a week seems to be a critical point. Beyond 15 hours a week, academic work suffers. And, and over half of high school students who work, work over 15 hours a week. And as many of you know, uh, many college students who work, work over 15 hours a week. Many college students uh, work full time and attend college only part time. Um, so work is a mixed blessing. It can teach people responsibility. It can teach people how to uh, show up, be presentable, be service-oriented, be conscientious, um, but it can also significantly interfere with academic success. Um, working or not working seems to have little effect on self-esteem or mental health, but because so many of those who work work more than 15 hours, on average those who work more uh, get lower grades. Um, where family influences are positive, jobs reduce time with families to reduce that positive influence. Uh, some teens 
use their earnings to help support their family. Some teens use their earnings as savings to help pay the cost of their education. But most teens use their earnings for stuff. Uh, and that's not necessarily good for people. Uh, when you're housing your food, are paid for and you have a lot of discretionary income to spend on stuff you want, um, you may have a false idea of what typical adult life is like. Um, if you're going to start uh, working out of college in um, a high earning technical position, it may be realistic to have a lot of discretionary income, but most people when they start out in their careers um, have to do a lot of priority setting about how they're going to spend their money and there's much less available for spending on clothes that you want rather than you need, for entertainment and food that you want rather than that you need. Uh, so what the book terms premature affluence can have a destructive effect. Okay, let's summarize. Um, Education for adolescents. Universal education for adolescents was conceived to support the integration of adolescents, the socialization of adolescents into adult roles. But education also supports personal goals, goals for intellectual development, for learning about the richness of one's culture, um, preparing one for work of one's choice. For many families, the only choice in education is publicly supported education. And a huge number of factors that are out of the control of any one family affect the quality of publicly funded education that's available, affect the atmosphere of of the public schools that are available, affect the competence of the teachers, affect the atmosphere that exists in individual classrooms. Adolescence activities outside of school, whether in extracurricular activities um, or employment, um, are also important sources of developmental experiences. Um, teen employment in particular can offer the opportunity for identity development, identity exploration, uh, but too often teen employment just serves the function of providing spending money, and that's not necessarily a positive outcome.